I think I may have a lot for us, no surprises there. Uh, I want to get right into God's Word this morning. Um, we're looking at a pretty poignant, pretty timely text. Uh, so let's uh, turn to Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. When we read it, I think you'll understand what I mean when I say timely. Um, yeah, we'll read it, we'll pray, and then uh, dive in. So Luke 20, verse 19, beginning there. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. I love that. It's amazing. Let's, uh, let's pray. God, these truly are um, crazy, chaotic times that we're living in on so many different levels, probably for most of us, uh, the wildest season of life we've ever had. Certainly at a, um, at a scale like this, it's, it's overwhelming. It's distressing. Uh, it can be hard to know what's up or down, what to do, what the way forward is. And definitely, God, one of the things that's really confusing to us is how does the church relate to the state? How does a Christian engage in politics? Should we even? Lord, these are questions that are on the forefront of our mind. What does it look like to faithfully enter the public square as your disciple? This is stuff that's right here, right here um, on the front of our mind, on the front of our hearts. And uh, Lord, we need you to speak today. I I feel um, insufficient for the task. And yet, uh, God, here I am. I pray that you would uh, use me. You get me out of the way. You let uh, your word, your heart for your people, and your mission advance in this world. Um, God, I pray that that would be what would take precedence. That that would be what would come uh, come out here this morning. God, do this for your glory and uh, for our good. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen. Um. So with a highly contested and controversial election coming up, uh, I think you can perhaps see um, why I would say that this text uh, is very poignant, very timely, that there is uh, perhaps no better text for us to have come to uh, than this one. Because um, here what we're really given is the opportunity to reflect together on some of those complicated matters uh, that I was even just praying about, like how Christians relate to 
politics, how we uh, should engage government, how church and state uh, interact, the kingdom of heaven, how does it relate to the kingdoms of this world? What does Jesus have to say to Caesar? Or, or, or is there anything uh, that they have to say uh, at all? And is there anything that we have to do with this at all? So there's just um, a great variety of questions. It's complicated and it's uh, perhaps as relevant as ever right now to be engaging some of these things. I think Surely you've probably felt the uh, political tension of recent days. I don't think you need me to recap it, although I'll, I'll, I'll share just a few just so we can kind of collectively feel the weight of this. Uh, obviously, the upcoming election is really just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Um, we could talk about things like COVID-19 and the, the political issues that have surrounded that, right? Uh, like, what's the best way forward? What should we do? What about the CDC? What about, you know, uh, closing things down or not? And with that, you know, we could talk about the economy and the best way to handle it. What sectors should be open? What sectors should be closed? How do we phase in? How do we phase out? Uh, we could talk about the, the racial uh, unrest and the inequality and things and these uh, protests and even the riots that are going on. What is the issue here and how do we help? What's the best way forward there? And everyone's uh, putting forward their uh, solutions, inevitably their political uh, solutions. And even in recent days, uh, something that we would take for granted is like the post office uh, becomes this big politicized hot button issue. So it's just all around us right now and it is certainly overwhelming. Um, I heard something recently from a pastor, and I really appreciated what he said. I think it kind of put things in perspective for me, kind of why am I feeling like this season is so wild and crazy and hard and challenging. And he kind of summed it all up in a way that I thought was just like, that's it. That's why. Um, and it made me kind of realize the profundity of this uh, historical moment that we are in. Um, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase what he said, but it was something like this. In 2020, it's almost as if we've taken the, the Spanish flu of the 1910s and coupled it with the unemployment of the Great Depression in the 30s and 40s and mashed that up together with the protests of the 60s and then rolled all this into one. And to top it off, let's throw in a highly contested, incredibly volatile presidential election. So you kind of get this sense that what was kind of spread out and difficult through the century uh, is actually kind of colliding uh, all in this single year here, 2020. It feels uh, like a lot. It feels intimidating and, and, and difficult and uh, confusing. And obviously, there's always been uh, confusion regarding how the church, how Christians should relate to the world, should relate to the, the state government politics in particular. But now I think we feel it even uh, more than um, ever. So I'm sure that you're, you're in the middle of this, right? I'm sure that uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you've experienced something of the 
um, the complexity of the social issues and not being able to tease it apart or even know which news source you could trust or which facts or what uh, platform or party is going to get the results. It's, it's challenging, the complexity of the social issues. Uh, we deal with the rapidity of the news cycle where, I mean, you can't even keep up with the stories that are coming and everything's shifting because a new one's happening. And just when you thought you were done with that, well, the entire state catches fire or whatever, and you just can't keep it. And then you're watching all your family and your friends and even your Christian brothers and sisters kind of arguing in this clash of opinions. It's confusing, it's disorienting, it's saddening, it's maddening. And again, we're left in the middle of all that kind of saying, what is our place here? Uh, how do Christians respond to this mess? What does a disciple of Jesus do uh, uh, when it comes to uh, government and, 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 and politics and elections? What options do we even have for engagement? And it's that last question concerning our options that uh, I'm really going to try to tackle in this morning's message. Um, I don't know why, but for some reason, uh, that's kind of how the text that I just read um, unfolded for me as I was reading it and studying. I just kind of saw these various options for political, uh, social engagement uh, coming out. Jesus was kind of, it seemed to me, it's almost like they're being shuffled through here. He's, he's correcting, he's, he's discarding, and then he's leading us to the proper way of engagement. What does it look like for the church to engage the state, to engage government, engage politics, engage the culture round about us? So that's really where we're going to uh, go this morning. But before we proceed here, I should say at least um, this. I, I do plan on, we'll see, uh, wrapping back around next week and actually uh, dealing with a, a broader vision of, of, of church and government and actually teasing out some more of the, the particulars because I know this text speaks to some of the things we're facing right now in particular ways. And um, we'll see if I feel brave enough to engage some of that. Uh, so if there are questions that you have that are unanswered here, maybe we'll come around next week and answer them. In fact, shoot me emails, let me know, and uh, maybe I can see if we'll weave some of that stuff into the uh, sermon. Did I just invite people to email me uh, their opinions about my sermons? I guess I did. I guess I did. I love you. Um, so hopefully we'll come back next week and do some more. But here is the agenda for this morning. I, I first want to simply make a few introductory comments, make sure we're, we're in the flow of the narrative, we catch what's going on, and then we're going to uh, take those, those various options for political engagement. How does a Christian engage? What are our options? Uh, we'll look at those. I've got four of them, and that's where we'll spend the majority of our time. So first, just some introductory comments. Um, we need to remember that conflict uh, between Jesus and the religious leaders there in Jerusalem. It's really heating up at this point, right? This is the last week of his life. Things are just uh, starting to kind of, you know, hit that fever pitch. It's getting hot. Um, and I'm sure where you're at, you actually feel it's hot in the room as well. Uh, I hope you're staying cool. But it's getting hot. Things are turning up as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. The leaders are, 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 are looking for ways to uh, make an end to him. And it would seem that the last parable Jesus shared, where he just kind of called him out and said, I'm taking the vineyard from you. <laughs> 
uh, that last parable really seemed to be the last straw for these guys. So we read there in verse 19, first part, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. They caught his drift and they didn't like it. So we got to get our hands on this guy before it's too late before he turns, folks, or whatever, against us. They wanted to kill him, but the only thing holding them back, Luke tells us, is that they feared, if you see that there in verse 19, they feared the people. So you remember these people, the, 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 um, just the average Jews there in Jerusalem are hanging on Jesus' words. They love him. They love what he's standing for. They're, they're, they're into uh, his message. They think they know where he's going here, and they're excited about it. They're hanging on his words. So these religious leaders are saying, listen, if we come after Jesus in broad daylight, uh, the masses are going to turn on us. We aren't going to have um, the approval of the people, the support of the people, the affection and the praise of the people that we so desire. So we're going to have to come up with some other uh, plan. So they kind of hatch, uh, they hatch this, uh, this plan to uh, get Jesus almost um, in secret, uh, in broad daylight and yet in secret. And it's actually kind of brilliant when you see it. And I want you guys to uh, get a hold of this uh, before we proceed. So we're told in verse 20 that they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they got guys, you know, clandestine guys going undercover and they armed these dudes with just a single question. It just seems simple on the front, seems like a nice, honest question. Anyone might be asking it, but with it, what they're aiming to do is put Jesus in checkmate. They're aiming to get Jesus in a corner where he can't get out. They're going to be able to get him uh, without it having to be them doing the work. And I'll show you what I mean. They set up this binary, it would seem, this yes or no question, this either or question. Uh, but it seems that either way Jesus is going to go, it's game over for him. That's at least what they're anticipating. Here's the question, verses 21 and 22. Teacher, they say, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Now, they're just this just empty flattery, right? Empty praise, just buttering him up so that he he's not ready. He's not expecting. They hope the uh, the bait and switch they're about to give the, the, the trap that they're laying for him. So they say, man, you are a great teacher. We love you, Jesus. Now, we've got one question. We know you, whatever uh, your answer is, it's going to be right. We can't wait to hear it. Here's the question. Verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Yes or no, that's really all we need. A simple answer. So the trap is set. Now, I'll need to clarify one thing just so you can kind of uh, begin to catch what they're doing. This tribute um, that they're asking about uh, in the Greek pharos, it's it's uh, really refers to what was called the imperial poll tax, uh, which would have been something that was paid directly to Caesar. In this case, it was Tiberius Caesar who was reigning at the time. And as such, um, 
paying it really could be understood as acknowledging and even honoring the Roman emperor. Went directly to him. It was a way of saying, man, we, we appreciate being in your reign. That, you know, thank you for letting us participate in uh, the bounty of your kingdom. And so there'd be this, this imperial poll tax that you would pay. That's what they are asking about here. Do we need to pay that? Should we or not? As Jews, should we or not? So here's the dilemma then that they're setting up for Jesus. If Jesus says on the one hand, yes, pay it, then there's one group in the crowd that he is going to surely upset. (laughs) Namely, most of the uh, people of Israel, the Jewish nationalists in particular, who uh, desire and, and thought the Messiah was going to come and overthrow Rome. And here to say, ah, yes, you should actually pay tribute to uh, Tiberius Caesar would almost seem to their ears like they're saying Jesus is okay with the uh, Roman oppression, with the Roman occupation, that he's okay that God's people are being uh, subjugated by a pagan nation. It would be unfathomable. And so what would happen? They would rise up. They would remove Jesus themselves. This was already a controversial issue, and these guys knew it when they asked the question. Because actually, uh, there's a long history of sort of disdain for this tax. Uh, Back when it was instituted in 6 AD, a Galilean uh, by the name of uh, uh, Judas, I believe, actually, we're told, uh, Josephus, the historian, that this guy, uh, Judas, uh, fomented a rebellion and said, listen, uh, people of Israel, we've got to resist this tax. We've got to resist it. And it's actually those guys that kind of started to rally around that that later became uh, the zealot movement that we see. And it's the zealot movement that ultimately gets Israel destroyed when they, uh, you know, revolt against Rome. And then Rome shows up and finally puts an end to it. So there's stuff in the works here. There's a history to this. And these guys are baiting Jesus out into the water infested with sharks. Because if he says yeah, pay the tax, then you got a whole group of people that goes, what do you mean? What do you mean? The, the, the Messiah was supposed to get these guys off our backs, not bend to them. So the religious leaders will have won. Jesus will look like a traitor to his country, a traitor to his God, and all those who were hanging on his word just moments before will now want to hang him. So that's if he says yes. But if he says no, don't pay the tax, on the other hand, well, the consequence for him will be equally dire, perhaps even more so, actually. Because if he says no, don't pay the tax, then it, it, it will look to be seditious. It will look as if he's a revolutionary, an insurrectionist, and it won't be long before those uh, you know, uh, spies bring word uh, to Rome. And in fact, we're told in the other accounts of the story that the Herodians were in the mix. These were guys who loved Herod, would have supported his reign. And, and they would hear Jesus say, don't pay the tax. Don't pay the tax to to Caesar or those guys representing Rome. And uh, they would have run off to Herod, who would have gone off to Caesar, and it would have been over for Jesus. Rome would have come in and stamped it out. 
So you see how in these guys' minds, either way you slice it, they win. It's checkmate. If he says, yes, pay it, then the Jews will disown him. If he says, no, don't, then the, Rome, the Romans will put an end to it. Either way, we still look good. And we get someone else to do our dirty work. It's a win-win, or so they thought. And perhaps here, it's a good to just kind of, good moment to kind of step back and just remind us, uh, let me remind you <laughs> that we're never going to outsmart God. It's never a good game to play to try to outwit Jesus, to try to hide and go undercover and trick or get away with something he sees, he knows, right? And even though he sees and he knows and we never get away with it, um, still we try, right? Ever since the garden, we've been trying. Like we're going to take from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then in comes God and we're doing, what are we, what are we trying to do? We're hiding under a bush, as if the God who made that bush and the world and the cosmos doesn't see where you're at. I remember hearing um, an illustration by Matt Chandler. I always appreciate his illustrations. He was talking about how it's kind of like, man, what we're doing, it's kind of like if you've ever played hide and seek with a little kid, right? Like me with Levi or something. It's like, you know, he's got his one or two key spots that I know he's going to go to every time. He may think he's sneaky. He may think he's got a chance. And I may let him think he does for a little while. But it's like, I know. All right, I'm going to walk up. And there he is, you know, right there with his, his, his toes hanging out from behind the, the uh, curtain, right? I mean, that's the go-to spot. Right behind the curtain, there's this big lump. Hmm, I wonder where my son is. I wonder uh, I wonder what's going on. He's thinking he's sneaky. I know right where he is. That's honestly how we are with God all the time. And it might be where some of you are even right now. Where there are things that you know ain't right. You know you're playing a game. You know you're trying to work the system. And you kind of think you're getting away with it. And you won't. You won't. And I just would encourage you, man, come clean. Don't play the game. Don't try to hide. You're not going to get away with it in the end. Just because he hasn't called you out to the mat yet doesn't mean that's not coming. So may come clean now. You don't want to have happen to you what's about to happen to these guys. They thought they laid the trap for Jesus. Jesus is going to flip it on them and catch them in it. That's how it always works. Let's watch. Let's watch. Um, actually, as we kind of make our way through the text, what we see now is that Jesus is not only kind of flipping the trap on these guys and evading what they were doing and getting them caught up in it. He's actually now also, as I've been saying, uh, going to kind of give us a broader vision of what it looks like for Christians to engage the government and, and the, the, the culture around them. Um, so here's where we kind of shift from those introductory, introductory remarks to now these various options. How should a Christian engage uh, politics? How does the church and the kingdom of God relate to the state and kingdoms of this world? Those are the sorts of questions now. And now we're going to look at the options that this text presents us. What, what are our options for engagement? Uh, what does it look like? So I've got four of them. This is where we're going to spend the, the, the rest of our time. Uh, get comfortable. Here we go. Option number one, I would um, call it antagonism. Antagonism. So how can Christians relate to the state or the government? Well, uh, they can fight against it. They can push 
uh, against the government, push against politics, see it as a sort of evil that needs to be overcome. Uh, they can see it perhaps as an enemy, see the state, the king, the whatever, uh, the president as someone that needs to be uh, uh, um, over, overthrown. Um, perhaps the source of uh, many of the problems in your life. And so we got to get aggressive. We uh, got to rebel. We got to rise up against it. Antagonism. Now, I don't doubt that there are some of us who feel that way right now. Like, man, the government is my enemy. I'm so sick of what they're doing. I'm so sick of what I'm seeing in the news. We just need to push. We just need to be done with this. We need to make an end of this, right? You feel that, like, push against the culture, push against the politics. It's the church's job to push back darkness. Well, as far as I can tell, it's all darkness. Let's push back against it. Here would be the perspective of those um, Jewish nationalists in Jesus' day that I've been mentioning, guys like the zealots who say, listen, we, we don't want Rome over us. We're going to buck them off. Guys like the Maccabeans before them who... Uh, with other you know, Gentile uh, nations that were over Israel, uh, didn't want it. We're going to get them off the throne. It's not right. They're our greatest enemy, the source of our problems. We need to push against its antagonism. Now, some will take this whole feeling and, and the beginnings of this and, and, and take it to its logical end, take it even further. And this is where you kind of get the idea of um, what you might call like Christianized government, where, uh, you know, we're not just going to kind of push back. We actually want to get rid of and replace with the church. So the church now is going to press against the government and replace the government. This is what you have uh, where the Jews are, are longing in a way to kind of go back to, to get back to what in the Old Testament would have been called a theocracy. Where under Moses, it was really there in Sinai, like God himself, Yahweh, ruling and reigning over the people, no one else. Like, let's get that, Right. Or uh, in the uh, Christianity, the history of Christianity, you see things like Christendom with Constantine, where he says, listen, uh, we are going to merge the two. Religion just took over state. And now you're going to, you know, we're going to wield not just the power of the keys, but the power of the sword. And we're going to convert people to Christianity using government, right? So there can be this is we're going to we're going to push against and we're going to overthrow and then we're going to stand in its place. Now, this might actually sound uh, perhaps good to us on the surface, but Jesus himself here actually in our text pushes back on the idea. And this is where we come to the first part of his uh, brilliant response that just leaves these guys speechless. So in verse 24, he asks for. Uh, someone to set forth a denarius. Um, a denarius was a coin in that day that uh, uh, amounted to about a day's wage for the common labor. So uh, he asks for a denarius. They ask this question, and Jesus, in, in classic fashion, kind of uh, is, is so intriguing. He never just gives a straight answer. He's always got uh, so many layers to uh, his response. And so he says, okay, let me see a denarius for a minute. And if you got one, let me see it. Uh, some guy in the crowd uh, uh, hands it over to Jesus, and he asks this question. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? 
And they said, Caesar's, Caesar's. Now, it would have been Tiberius Caesar, uh, his image on the coin. And you got to hear this uh, underneath his image there on the coin underneath his likeness inscribed into the coin would have also been uh, these words Tiberius Caesar son of the divine Augustus in other words son of God okay Tiberius Caesar son of the divine Augustus um, now you can see I think why the Jews would have found this this whole thing so offensive, uh, so just distasteful. They'd never put an image on a coin, uh, let alone the image of someone who thought he was uh, equal to a god, right? Um, emperor worship began, it seems, with Augustus and just carried on from him. And so you've got these guys now who think they are gods and demand to be treated uh, as such so then is it any wonder why the Jews would expect man when the Messiah comes he's going to put an end to that nonsense I know what the real Messiah's answer would be to this question no way do you enter into this tribute thing with coins like this are you kidding me so here Jesus is holding this coin in his hand son of God versus son of God it would seem right uh, who's going to win? What's he going to do? What's he going to say to what would seem to be this imposter, this one who's coming after his title, his throne? We would expect him to throw this thing in the dirt, maybe stomp on it, uh, unsheathe his sword, and make a run on Tiberius for this sort of vanity, this sort of idolatry. But that's not what he does. It's amazing. Instead, no doubt to the surprise of many standing by, he says, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Verse 25. Whose image is on it? Caesar's? Then give it back to him. It's his. Wow. There's no antagonism. There's just what appears to be humble submission and even perhaps respect. For a guy claiming to be a god. It's crazy. Now, this really leads to option number two. So option number one, antagonism. But Jesus won't let that fly because he says, listen, give, yes, pay the tribute, pay the tax. The government isn't your greatest enemy. Don't worry so much. It's okay. You can give that tribute back to him. Not antagonism. But now we come to option number two, uh, what I would call compromise. And this is where at this point in the discussion, it looks like Jesus is leading us, right? It looks like he's saying, okay, listen, give your money to Caesar. If you can't beat him, join him, right? There's this whole notion here. It would seem that, okay, we're just going to go soft. We're going to lay down our arms. We're going to accommodate the culture, accommodate the secular government. And we are just going to kind of capitulate to this. If you can't beat him, join him. 
antagonism is the church trying to kind of push against and overtake the state. Uh, compromise is more or less the church letting the state overtake her. Uh, so we start to dilute our convictions. We lose our distinction as God's people. Our hope starts to migrate from Yahweh and his kingdom to Caesar and his. We start to place more hope, more, more of our chips in on that wager. So in Jesus's day, this would be uh, the perspective of groups like the Herodians, uh, who I mentioned, or even the Sadducees. Um, they were supportive of Rome. They appreciated the opportunities that were afforded to them because they were in power. They liked the status quo a little bit because uh, it allowed them a little bit more prestige, a little bit more comfort, and they were willing to buddy up with uh, these Gentile uh, rulers if it meant that they could keep that, maybe get a little more of that, uh, they were all right with it. And so there was this compromise that was taking place with some Jews uh, between uh, them and uh, these uh, Gentiles, these Romans. That's one way you could respond to, uh, the church could respond to the state. Uh, for us here in America, what it might look like is putting way too much hope, <laughs> putting way too much stock in a particular uh, political party or platform as if it's going to fix everything uh, for you and, and do for you what only Jesus really can. Um, there's a lot, I think, uh, of this sort of thing going around. In fact, that's kind of how uh, these candidates try to sell themselves, right? They sell themselves in messianic, messianic terms, uh, they try to get you to feel like, okay, listen, this election, just so you know, your entire life is hanging in the balance here. If I, if I don't get elected, it is over for you. And they need this exaggerated rhetoric. It is over for you. Life as you knew it, America as you knew it, it's all gone if I don't get elected. But if I do get elected, it's salvation. The angels are singing. <laughs> the choir is here. Uh, we're going to go down to the river and, and get baptized. because New life has begun, right? That's the sort of rhetoric that we can, if we're not careful, buy into. And we start to feel like, man, okay, yes, our, our hope starts to migrate from King Jesus to the kings of this world. And we think, he's going to fix it. He's going to do it. He's got to do it. We're going to put everything in on that. We start to compromise. We start to lose our distinction. We start to uh, uh, fudge on some of our convictions because we're going to support this guy or whatever it is. Be, you know, and, and so we can do some of this. We, we, we start to trust and hope no longer in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but perhaps the gospel of the Republican or the Democratic Party. They're trying to sell you good news. They're trying to sell you good news. We can put our hope in earthly kings but Jesus won't let this stand either and um, that's why as we kind of revisit his response and kind of go a little bit deeper in it uh, he, he goes uh, where he goes next to kind of push back on this option this ain't going to work for Jesus and his people either uh, here's where it gets really profound as we look at his response so remember first he says 
Uh, get me one of those coins whose likeness is on it. Uh, in the Greek, that word likeness is the word icon. Now, you need to know that for something I'm about to say. It, it essentially means image. Um, and then he, his logic is, well, if Caesar's image is on it, uh, give it back to Caesar. It is. That's fine. He can have it. But then he adds this and render to God. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. The latter part of verse 25. So the question that we're left with, if we're following his logic, well, Caesar's image is on it. He gets it. What is God's image on? If we're trying to figure out, render to God what is God's, what are God's? Well, what is God's image on? I think you know where I'm going with this. It's on you and me. According to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, uh, God created man in his own image. In the Greek Septuagint, icon. In his own likeness, in his own image, male and female, he created them. Implication, if Caesar gets your money because his image is on it, God gets you, all of you, <laughs> submitted, surrendered every aspect of your life. He gets it because his image is on you. So whatever else is going on here in Jesus's response, it's certainly not compromise. He is not saying, well, I guess let's just join Caesar's team because he's now essentially saying, no, no, no. We are going to ultimately be giving our allegiance not to Caesar, but to Yahweh, but to God, because it's it's his image that's on us. You may have our coins. God has our lives. We're not antagonistic or insurrectionist, nor are we compromisers or collaborators. We're somehow engaged with the state, even generally appreciative of it and working with it, it would seem. And yet we're remaining faithful and committed to our God. We're not trying to crush Caesar, nor are we bending our knee to Caesar. Instead, we are moving towards him, it would seem, in the name of Jesus. And now, perhaps, hopefully you're seeing why these guys standing around just marveled and went away quiet with their foot in their mouth. We got nothing to say. They set up a false dichotomy, um, a binary, what they thought was a checkmate, a yes, a yes or no answer, an either or situation. And Jesus comes back and says both. And Jesus answered their question in such a way that both Roman overlords and Jewish nationalists could be sufficiently satisfied, it seems to me. Uh, he's not promoting rebellion against Rome. We know that because he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But neither is he uh, uh, promoting uh, capitulation to Rome. And we know that because he says, render to God the things that are God's. So both could be sufficiently satisfied or at least perplexed with his response. It's a both and situation. In fact, what it seems he's 
saying here is that uh, you can stay faithful to, to Yahweh while in a sense being a faithful citizen uh, of the kingdoms of this world. In fact, it would seem one of the ways you can uh, render to God what is God's, namely your life and every aspect of it, including the political aspect of it, uh, is to engage in this political sphere on behalf of, of Jesus and with his heart and his mission and his attitudes and with his, his, his rule and his reign. So it's profound, it would seem then, that to be a faithful member of Yahweh's kingdom also means being humbly and intentionally engaged as a citizen in the kingdom of this world. So in this, I think he's revealing to us the way we as Christians can properly relate to the political sphere of our day. But there's, I want to hit pause on this for a moment. Because there's one other option that Christians and, uh, and followers of, of, of God through the ages have really been kind of get stuck in. There's one option we can really be tempted towards sometimes that I think needs to be addressed. Um, and it's this option of withdrawal. So option number one, antagonism, that ain't going to work. Number two, compromise, that's not going to work. Uh, number three, uh, here now, withdrawal. So this is the idea, really, of um, uh, obviously moving away from the state, moving away from the political sector, the political sphere. Um, so here's what people in this camp may do with the words that Jesus just spoke, his response. They might see what he did as, as, as setting up, as delineating two distinct, separate uh, spheres or realms, okay? One belongs to, okay, I'm tracking with you, Jesus. One realm belongs to Caesar. That's over there. The other realm belongs to God. Uh, that's over here. They don't overlap. They don't intersect. There's no relation. In fact, what we want to do if we're going to be followers of God is get away from the realm of Caesars, forget about it, withdraw from it, separate from it, and get into the realm of gods, or the realm of God. So on the one hand, you may have government, you may have state, you may have secular authorities, and on the other hand, you have the church. Uh, you, have, you have God's kingdom, and the two don't speak to one another. The two are separate. Here really is the division between secular and sacred. Here's what's been referred to um, as the two kingdoms theology, at least when it's taken to its extreme, it can go here. Um, in other forms, it can be appropriate. Um, here's what, uh, through the years, has been referred to as the doctrine of the spirituality of the church. Uh, the, the notion there is that, hey, listen, the spiritual stuff is our stuff. But the physical stuff, the, the worldly stuff, the cultural stuff, that's for the state. That's for the people of this world. The church is just concerned with spiritual things. Don't engage the political. That's not our place. So this is what has led to pulling away for Christians throughout the ages. So in Jesus's day, uh, what we have are the, the Essenes who, uh, you know, the Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's those guys. They lived out in the desert. They said, forget it. We don't want to pay taxes and things. We're going to pull out and away. The way we're going to respond to the political situation that we don't like is let's just get out of here. Right? The Essenes 
uh, in Jesus' day. Or in the early church, you have the ascetics. Uh, in um, the medieval period, you have the, the monastics who go off into the monasteries, right? In uh, the Reformation era of church history, you have the Anabaptists. But we're always doing this. And more recent for us would be things like fundamentalism, uh, fundamentalism, where it's like, hey, listen, the culture's over there. It's going to burn anyways. Uh, we're going to come over here and do our own thing. Uh, we're not going to engage in that. We'll save souls, <laughs> which is obviously great, but when it's taken to this extreme, you're no longer engaged in, 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 in matters of justice or concern for the poor or even really at that uh, degree, um, at least at a political level, love for neighbor. And so it becomes a problem. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure some of us are ready to join that crew right now. Some of us are ready to go with the withdrawal camp, right? Like, let me get out of this situation. I am so tired of scrolling through Facebook and seeing all of my friends fighting. Everyone's posting this. This contradicts that. Then this person thinks they just went up, but then this person, and then they unfriend and all that. It's like, this is madness. The complexity of the issues. I don't know how to vote. I don't know the right thing to do. Who am I? I I'm just going to pull away. So we avoid those conversations with our family and friends. We don't, we don't want to fight. It's not important anyways. Let's talk about Jesus, <laughs> right? We can kind of do that. We can enter this camp. And one of the things we see, one of the reasons why it's important to study church history is we see the, the, the incredible problems that this has created. When the, when the children of God uh, sit on their hands and they watch all manner of evil uh, taking place around them. They don't confront it with the truths of God. They, they don't approach it. They don't get into the public square and get dirty uh, in the name of Christ. Uh, then all sorts of wickedness can crop up and is allowed to flourish. Um, so just to give you a couple examples, I'll have to go through this quickly because uh, I do want to get to the last and what I think is the right option. Um, Lutheran uh, theologian Robert Ben. Uh, speaks of how the German Lutherans, listen to this, as an unfortunate result of their two kingdoms approach where the government's kind of over here and the church is over here and they have little to say to one another, that extreme of the two kingdoms approach. Um, uh, as a result of that, he says that uh, really the, the church allowed the Nazi movement uh, to go unchecked uh, by appeal to the intellectual and moral content of the Christian vision. So because they thought we don't have anything to say, uh, and then the spirituality of the church, the two kingdoms vision of the church, we're over here in this kingdom, they're over there in that, uh, the Nazi regime was allowed to kind of flourish unchecked by the, the moral and, and theological vision uh, that's put forward in Scripture. And this is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a uh, Lutheran pastor, famous uh, for taking a stand against the Nazis, even unto death. He, he, he was pleading with his fellow Christians uh, at the time, and he, he wrote uh, this. We must finally stop appealing to theology to justify our reserved silence about what the state is doing. For that is nothing but fear. Open your mouth for the one who is voiceless. For who in the church today still remembers that that is the least of the Bible's demands in times such as these? Stop using your theology to justify your silence. He said, you're just, it's just selfish. 
and it's fear, and, 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 and you're justifying your withdrawal. When we know, man, when we open up the scriptures, we're called to move towards the hurting and to get in the ring for, say, in this case, the Jews and what's going on all around us. We've got to stand against it. When the church withdraws, these things can flourish. The same could be said um, on the issue of slavery here in America. The doctrine of the spirituality of the church um, is actually kind of what led Henry Thornwell, a Southern Presbyterian theologian, during the Civil War era uh, to write these stunning words. I just was amazed to hear this, and you might be too, but these doctrines kind of move you in this direction. Here's what he says. Whether slavery exists or not is a question which exclusively belongs to the state. We have no right as a church to enjoin as a duty or to condemn it as a sin. The social, civil, political problems connected with this great subject transcend our sphere as God has not entrusted to his church the organization of society, the construction of government, nor the allotment of individuals to their various stations. He essentially says, quiet down with all this talk about abolition. It's not our business. Not the church's business. Let the state handle it. Separate withdrawal. Martin Luther King, much like Bonhoeffer in his day, seeing this sort of separatist, passive, withdrawn attitude uh, still pervasive in the church, uh, even, uh, you know, century later, would beg to differ, would beg to differ with Henry Thornwell on this issue. In his letter uh, from Birmingham jail, he writes this. I love this. I have heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to comply with the desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers say, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sideline and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice. I have heard so many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion that made a strange distinction between body and soul, the sacred and the secular. Now this part, I just love this. So here we are moving towards the exit of the 20th century with a religious community largely adjusted to the status quo, standing as a taillight behind other community agencies rather than a headlight leading men to higher levels of justice. Man, the way he communicates, the images he puts forth, it's so powerful. That last part just stuck with me. Christians aren't supposed to be taillights taking up the rear on matters of justice, equality, and human rights. No, Christians are called to be headlights, showing the way forward through the darkness, even as we face the, the yuck and the twisted stuff of the current political scene. We can move forward, and they, the, the culture needs us to do that. 
be a tail light following behind what they say or a headlight for Jesus, God. This is essentially what Jesus himself would say, it seems to me. Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. And this really leads me back now to where I was going at the end of option two. Antagonism doesn't work. Compromise doesn't work. Withdrawal doesn't work. I think where Jesus is wanting to take us is to what I'd call redemptive representation. Redemptive representation. Um, returning to Jesus' answer in verse 25, it seems clear to me he's not setting up two distinct realms that don't communicate with one another. Caesar's over here and God's over here. No. Nor is he kind of drawing two spheres, if you will, where maybe they overlap in little bits of places, but, uh, you know, by and large, they run their own path. No, what it seems to me he is communicating is that there is one smaller circle inside of another all-encompassing circle. The realm of the state is within and subservient to the realm of God. That's what Jesus' statement means, I think, when he says, listen, Caesar's rule and realm is confined to that which has his image on it. So give him the stuff of Rome. But God's rule and realm, on the other hand, is confined to that which has his image on it, namely all people everywhere, and catch this, including Caesar. And that's the essential point. Caesar falls within that which God can say is my realm. I'm the king. You see, God is the one who establishes government. God's the one who puts kings in charge. God's the one who who, who initially establishes, sets forth its functions, identifies what would be good and bad government, holds them accountable. You see it all throughout the scriptures, and we may be able to do some of that next week. What we need to understand now, at least, is that if this is true, If our God is the one who has established and defined the boundaries and purpose of the state, then by implication, we, the church, as the people of this God and the ambassadors of his Christ, should certainly have much to say and do with regards to it. If God's the one who establishes the boundaries, the function, the purpose of the state, and we are God's people, we are his mouthpiece, we are his ambassadors, his representatives, then we should have much to say to the state, much to do within the state. We're not to be two separate institutions going our two separate ways. There ought to be significant engagement or what I'm here calling redemptive representation. I steal that word representation from Jonathan Lehman's lectures that I I encourage you guys on the Facebook community page to listen to. I love it. It's great. Talks about how we are representatives of another king, King Jesus. And I put that word redemptive there because that's essentially what we are 
after. We are representing our king and working for the redemption and restoration of all things. Even as we live within and engage the broken and twisted up kingdoms of this world, we bring God and Christ, his rule and his reign to bear on every aspect of our lives in every sphere of this world, including the political stuff. Jesus has things to say. That's what the big circle around it all, Caesar, you're in this, means. God has stuff to say. God has stuff for the church to do. It's not conflating church and state. Don't hear me say that. God is over both church and state. But man, the church has plenty to say and do. Redemptive uh, representation. And ultimately, I think this is what Jesus modeled. Jesus did for us, right? Uh, and, and, and we watch him. Uh, Jesus didn't see the, the government, the state, as man's greatest enemy, uh, like perhaps the antagonists or the insurrectionists would. Uh, but Jesus did feel called to step in and communicate, right? When we, he had a prophetic witness and would call out, like a John the Baptist, or other, we're going to call out sin and wrongdoing where we see it whether that's in religious authorities or, 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 or governing authorities. Jesus uh, didn't see government as man's greatest hope, uh, like perhaps the compromisers would, um, but he wasn't afraid to support government either. So he's not afraid to push against it. He's, he's not afraid uh, also to support it and to call his people, as we see through Paul, to honor the emperor or even here to render to Caesar what is his to serve in some ways and affirm where we see government uh, fulfilling God's good function and doing good work. He didn't pull away into indifference or withdraw, but he certainly also uh, 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 was able to maintain his distinction from the world even as he was in it. So my kingdom is uh, not of this world, and yet here we are in the world. Be not of it, but be in it. Be holy and pure and set apart. But man, he's getting dirty. He's modeling for us. And of course, most significantly of all, what we see is he showed us a new way to be king. He showed us a new way to be king. Our King Jesus wears a crown of thorns before he ever wears a crown of jewels. Our King Jesus carries a cross before he ever carries a scepter. Our King Jesus is um, wrapped in burial garments before he's ever wrapped in royal robes. Our King Jesus is, is laid into the tomb before he's ever sat down upon the throne. Our King Jesus lays his life down in love to serve the very ones he's been called to rule. This models this incredible way of redemptively engaging the culture. We're called to represent him, his agenda, his heart, his mission, even in the political arena and the public square. God has stuff to say there. Jesus has stuff to do there. To be clear, I'm not saying that the concerns of the public square trump the concerns of the Great Commission. 
but neither are the two opposed to one another. And that's what we need to understand. Do we want to make disciples? Yes. Is that the fundamental reality that we are after, the mission that we are on? Yes. But one of the ways we make disciples is by entering the public square and the political arena and engaging in a way that Jesus would on behalf of our king. So that they see our concern for the orphan and the widow. They see our concern for the unborn. They see our concern for uh, the, the oppressed and the racially uh, you know, oppressed. They see our concern, our love for neighbor. They see our passion for justice and shalom. They see our good deeds, as Jesus said, and therefore will glorify God, we pray, on the day of visitation. They will come to know our Father. They see us living and moving like him in every sphere of life, whether it's in the schoolhouse, it's in the living room, or it's in in, um, the White House or wherever in Washington. I'll close with the words of one commentator that I think sum all this up nicely. Um, The reply of Jesus in verse 25 does not echo the politics of the zealots, who were bent on armed combat with Rome, or of the Sadducees who accommodated to the state, or of the Pharisees who followed an independent course indifferent to the state. You see them right there. Antagonism, compromise, withdrawal. Nor does the judgment of Jesus advocate a separate and perhaps even contrary sacred order within a larger secular society. Both Jesus and his followers situate themselves within their respective political and cultural milieus and advocate service of the common good within them. So it's not antagonism. It's not compromise. Nor is it withdrawal. When it comes to that question, how can, how can Christians engage with politics, engage the state, engage the government. It's redemptive representation. We come in on behalf of our king as an ambassador, bringing his culture, his values to bear, his authority, his rule, his reign to bear, his word, his law to bear. There. Let's pray. God, we need your help if we are going to do that. I know there are so many different ideas of how that could be done and maybe even people misunderstood what I was just saying. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to be charitable where there's open-handed perspectives on how, what it looks like, who to vote for, what policies to get behind. But God, help us to be centered together on this truth that whatever strategy, whatever we pursue, we want to be redemptive representatives. We want to stand for you. We want to engage, not just sit back while evil flourishes or whatever. We want to try our best. Give us wisdom. Help us, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.